There we go. Even with me forgetting to turn on the microphone. That was great. All right, well, it is so good uh, to get to be here and to get to be uh, sharing God's word with y'all this morning. We are going to be continuing our study, of course, in the book of John. Uh, We actually had to look it up this week. We've been in John officially now about a year and a half. Uh, But good news, we're well past the halfway mark. We're in chapter 16. Um, Last week, uh, Chris Sherrod opened up chapter 16 and covered uh, the first 11 verses. Uh, And he said then that uh, this week, Chris would be here bringing the message. Um, And he isn't a liar, or at least not an intentional one. Um, And that was the plan until uh, track schedule came and then realized there was some overlap and he wasn't going to get here uh, until the end of the first service. And so I wasn't worried. He said this before. We have a, I mean, almost an embarrassingly rich pulpit or pulpit team that's deep of anybody who can come up here and teach. Um, we have some, some very gifted, uh, strong biblical teachers. And so I thought, surely out of all that list, somebody will be able to cover it. Uh, but turns out about half of them are also at track. Um, so track apparently is getting some great teaching going on uh, all out there at camp as they're finishing up. And unfortunate for y'all, uh, you'll have to put up with me again for another hour. Um, I do want to say, I've said this to Chris alone, but I've never said this to all of y'all. And I'm going to read it because I want to be very careful in how I say it. Um, but Chris, I, I am glad that you are a senior pastor who is committed to serious biblical teaching far more than you are committed to your ego, self-esteem, insecurity, popularity, or whatever it is that causes so many senior pastors to be unwilling to share a pulpit um, with a congregation. And so uh, let us thank God for the work that he has done in Chris's life and having him here. All right, and with all that said, what a great week to actually get to step back in and do this because this passage that we're gonna be considering, uh, Jesus essentially kind of, does it all. He's the one that's really teaching through this as he's teaching his disciples. I mean, he's going he's gonna to start by drawing them in and piquing their interests. He's going to lead them to develop their own questions. He, of course, is going to be the one who answers their, uh, their inquiries. And in doing so, he's going to reveal the truth that they were seeking that they didn't even know they were seeking. Uh, and, and to top it all off, he's going to give them an illustration and give them the application. Uh, So there's not much more really to add to this. I mean, Jesus kind of has this whole sermon, this whole teaching thing well well planned out. Um, And as we see John's recording of it, um, we're going to see this great masterful teacher doing all these elements. And then John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to do a lot of repetition uh, as he repeats this. And so what makes for a little bit of a maybe laborious read all the way through as a big swath um, because it's going to repeat so much. If we can kind of just pause, or hopefully our goal for today is just to kind of pause and be able to maybe outline a couple of the sections uh, to, to highlight some of the things that are going on in Jesus' teaching and not let the repetition uh, be a distraction from seeing kind of the big picture of what's going on and hopefully uh, how we can participate in the same things. And so what I'm going to ask, uh, ask you to do now is we're actually going to read um, all the way back into 12, where we left off last week, even though primarily we're going to be in 16 through 24. Uh, but I'm going to ask you to stand in reverency of God's word. Uh, and, then let's, and then I'm going to read this over y'all and ask you, to, um, ask you to bear along with it. And then we're going to close with a, uh, a rote prayer to write our hearts and our minds to what the Lord has for us. Starting in verse 12 of chapter 16. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for, what, uh, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I say that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is, that, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. And just then, Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, this is what we ask. Align ourselves with your glory. Keep us dependent on your word, and thank you that attached to your glory is this gift of joy. Make complete our joy as you are complete in your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all may be seated. Now, again, I mentioned some of that is a little bit hard to read as a big swath because it repeats so much, but particularly it's not just repeating, uh, repeating just kind of a normal saying. It's actually repeating a very special figure of speech. Um, Jesus is imploring this in verse 16, uh, and he's, he's wanting again to, to say something that's going to capture his disciples into what he has to tell them. And again, remember where we fall in the book of John. Uh, this chapter and the chapters preceding it are all in the middle of Jesus' private ministry to his disciples. In the beginning, the first 11 is his public ministry. Now we enter into his private ministry. And soon, very soon, we're going to be entering into his passion ministry, him actually going to the cross. So this is the time when he's gathering up all the guys. He's saying, hey, this is the really important stuff. Let me leave this with you. And in leaving this with you, I know you'll have help. But what he does here in 16 is he implores this figure of speech known as a mashal. This is your fancy word of the day. Uh, So all you Hebrew scholars, if you weren't one, you are one now. Everybody repeat, mashal, mashal. So mashal is simply that. It's kind of a, a paradoxical statement or maybe a, uh, a parable that in face value doesn't seem to make sense. But by its incongruity in its face value, you then know you're directed towards a deeper meaning. This is what Jesus is doing here in 16. It's not the first time we've seen a mashal implored in the book of John. In fact, John the Baptist says it in the very first chapter when he bears witness about Jesus. And he says, this was he whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. It's like, how do you rank older, yet you're before and after? You know, so it, it's kind of that I read it, I heard it, now I'm going to have to like reread it and understand it. That's the point of a mashal. It's 
supposed to present something that draws you in to understand how does this actually line up? How is this congruent? And it doesn't always happen by um, kind of odd phrasing or timing of language as it does here in 16 or as John the Baptist did it. Our second occurrence of a mashal was actually John 2, 19, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, three days I'll raise it up. Well, that sounds very plain, but again, if we take it on face value, this was the problem with the Pharisees. They took it on face value and they're saying, what do you mean? It took years to build this temple. How are you going to raise it up after it's destroyed in just three days? But that's the point of these figures of speech. It's to present something that at first kind of seems like, okay, there has to be something more, a veiled or more mysterious meaning to this. And so that's the opener that Jesus uses. Uh, and that's exactly what happens, what the disciples do. So when he says, Okay, one cause, one time frame, two results, and different results. A little while, you will not see me. A little while, you will see me. Same time frame, two different results. They're going to be asking, well, what, what exactly does this mean? How is this going to come to be? Well, that's exactly as the text then presents itself. Because in the next couple of verses, uh, in the verses from 17 to 18, what we see, um, for those like outlines, what we see here is the disciples entering discussion. This next part is the disciples' discussion about his enigmatic statement that he's made in 16. Jesus teaches, now the disciples discuss. If we were to give two words to summarize uh, the disciples' discussion here, I would say propose this, that they are marked by perplexity and that they are marked by hesitancy. This is the disciples' discussion, is that they are perplexed, yet they are also hesitant. Look for these two things as we read it in verse 17. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me and because I am going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. The disciples here are perplexed. This isn't a new state for the disciples, right? We've seen the disciples perplexed this entire time that Jesus has been talking. Uh, and ultimately, in this specific private ministry that Jesus is telling them, the one thing they seem to always get hung up on is that Jesus is about to do something that they don't want him to do. He is basically, in this whole time, saying, I am going away. It is now my time, and I won't be with you longer. And this is where the disciples are, is that they don't want him to go. They don't understand why he would go, why he keeps saying that they'll leave him. Leave him. I mean, even in this chapter alone, listen, verse 5, and he's saying, now I'm going to go to the Father who sent me. In verse 10, he says, I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. Right when he's saying that he's going to go and he's going to be away, what does verse 16 hit? Yeah, I'm going to go, but I'll also be with you. And then all of them are thinking, wait, what? Yeah, for a little while I'm going to go, but a little while I'm going to be back. They were thinking of this as a finality, and now he's just interrupted their whole concept of it, and so they're struggling with it. Now, it might make sense to us, we understand this, but we live past the resurrection. We've got to remember where they are and put ourselves in their shoes. They don't have 18 through 20 of John written to them or recorded, Right? So they're just sitting here trying to figure out what is this man talking about then? We know he's going to go away with finality, but yet he's going to return. Frederick Lewis G 
Godet, Godet, I don't know, he's Swiss. Um, so however you're a Swiss person would say his last name. Uh, he wrote this in actually 1886, and I thought it was worth making mention when he points to this fact where he says, where for us all is clear, for them all was mysterious. If Jesus wishes to found the messianic kingdom, why go away? If he does not wish it, why return? So if he's here to bring about the kingdom, why is he now leaving? Well, clearly if he's left, he's not concerned about bringing about the kingdom. Why, why would he return? This makes sense of why then this whole teaching section of Jesus keeps pointing to the helper, the truth one, the spirit of truth who will come. Again, we're glossing over this morning because we've seen it already back in June when Chris taught in verse uh, 17 of chapter 14, um, also in, in a couple weeks ago in 1526 when he did an excellent job just on a couple aspects of this verse. Again, all those are on the website. Go back and, and put them all together. It's, uh, this is a resource that's available to all of us. But even today, we covered this same fact in our reading. You know, verse 12, he starts with, I have many things to say, but not now. You do not understand the things and can't grasp anymore. But in 13, the spirit of truth is coming. And when he comes, he will guide you in all truth. So we see the disciples' perplexity. We see them not getting it. We have a hope that they will, but right now, they're, they're lost in this. And that hasn't stood out against the normal pattern that we've run into in the book of John. Of course, the disciples are perplexed. But what does stick out here is how the disciples respond. Here, instead of taking their questions straight to Jesus and interacting with him face to face, they begin to have a conversation amongst themselves. This is why I would say not only are the disciples perplexed, the disciples are hesitant. Again, and this is an odd thing for us. Those of y'all who've been with us this entire time as we've been working through uh, this private ministry of Jesus. I mean, Peter in, ver in chapter 13 has tons of questions. He says, Lord, will you wash my feet? Lord, who is it that will deny you? Lord, why can't I follow you? Anytime Peter's perplexed, he just speaks up and lets it be known. It's not just Peter who does all the talking in this private ministry. I mean, we've seen Thomas ask, how can we know the way, Lord? How can we understand we see Philip also in that same chapter, will you show us the Father? A specific request. We don't get this. We think it'll be enough, so we're gonna ask you, will you show us the Father? Judas the Greater in the same way, in the same conversation, why show yourself to us and not the world? So throughout this whole time, the disciples have been marked with perplexity, but they've taken their questions directly to Jesus. This go around, they kind of huddle up. They're hesitant. They don't ask Jesus, they start asking themselves. So it begs the question, why the hesitancy? Why not just ask Jesus directly? Why talk amongst themselves first? I want to propose three maybes, maybe reasons why. In all truth, it's probably a mixture of all of them uh, or some degree of all of them or any other, but we don't really know from Scripture. This is us trying to be um, good, good infers of Scripture and read ourselves into the text. Maybe, first maybe, maybe, maybe they're catching on to their track record. I had one in the commentaries put it into baseball. After, after striking out so much, maybe you stop swinging at every pitch, right? <laughs> maybe this is the disciples seeing this pattern of, okay, we keep being perplexed and we keep asking him these questions and then we still don't get it. <sighs> I, I'm tired. I, well, let's talk amongst ourselves this time, guys. I'm not, I don't know if I'm ready for it. Maybe. Maybe that they're catching on to their track record. Another commentary put it as this. Maybe, maybe, Maybe they're rebelling. Maybe it's rebellion against Jesus' comment about why they're not talking to him but about themselves. Remember, how did we open in verse 12? 
I've told you many things, but I'm not going to tell you any more because you cannot bear them now. This one I also see could be one of Peter's. Oh, yeah, Lord, I'll show you what I can bury or how much burden I can carry. I'll show you what, what this is. I can understand some things. And right when he's at that point of confidence, Jesus says, for a little while, I'll be with you. A little while, I won't be with you. All right, Jesus, I got this. Okay, hey, guys, we, we got a powwow about this one. I don't got this one. Uh, I really want to impress Jesus on this. Maybe. Maybe it is that they're rebelling against Jesus, saying that they can't bear anymore, and so they're not even asking questions uh, because they, they want to first try to show how much that they can bear to Jesus. I, I don't know. Again, all supposition. Or maybe, this is the third one, this is the one I like the most, maybe it is simply because they're grieving. Maybe it's because they're sad. Maybe that sorrow is already starting to take in with the realization that Jesus won't be with them. We all know this, and our grief, our emotions, cause us to do oftentimes all kinds of things that don't make sense. Maybe it is that they've been hearing this message of, I won't be with you any longer, and they are troubled, and they are grieved. And now when there seems to be some point of respite of, I will be with you again, they don't even want to consider it with Jesus because they can't even bear going to the master to understand this further. Maybe it is that in their grief of missing Jesus, they're taking an opportunity of missing an interaction with him yet again here on earth. I don't know. Again, we'll see. What we do see is that the disciples' discussion here is marked with perplexity and hesitancy. But I think before we move into the next section, uh, it was worthwhile for me at least to consider right now to stop and to put myself into the disciples' shoes and say, okay, where is this true of my life? Where am I perplexed? Where am I having grief and sorrow? Where am I not understanding this plight or circumstance around me? And where am I being hesitant to not take that boldly before the throne of grace and of God? What, what, what is it? Maybe it's for you in the same way, these same things that the disciples possibly went through. Maybe it's that you feel like you're just giving up. Believing the lie that God's grace isn't good enough for you, that you're like, every time I try this, I keep screwing it up. So I'm just gonna stop trying. Maybe you're living out some kind of rebellion against Jesus. In your pride, you don't even realize you need him. Maybe you believe the lie that no matter what the world throws at you, you're fine. You'll just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and push through on your own strength. And that's why you're not going to Jesus. Or maybe it is that you're grieving, you're grieving and facing, facing true sorrow. And in your grief, you've turned to all kinds of things of the world to satisfy it, and none of them are satisfying because ultimately you've made the mistake of not turning to Jesus. Whatever it is, I do think that the disciples seem to have some excuse. The disciples can be excused. They haven't seen the cross. They haven't seen the resurrection. We have no excuse. Reminding me of Hebrews 4.14, where it starts and says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heaven, heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, he concludes, with the confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and to help in a time of need. Whatever the reason is uh, that you haven't gone to the Lord to respond and boldly go before his throne, 
Um, I want you to hear this, these truths from Scripture as we've read them. The work of the cross has been completed. Hold firm to the faith that you profess and go boldly near to the throne of grace, for there is mercy and grace in your time of need. I was reminded of that good old hymn in the simple song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Oh, what a peace we often forfeit. Oh, what a needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Such a simple verse, yet I know, even in my own life as I reflected upon this, there's a mixture of all these reasons of why I forget to go and take everything to God in prayer. But luckily for the disciples and luckily for us, Jesus doesn't leave them in their perplexity, even though they're hesitant, nor will he leave us in the same state. And so he moves on. And this next section, as he moves out of the disciples' discussion, now we're going to see the master's compassion. Verses 19 through 22 show Jesus' response to them, even though they haven't asked of him. Again, for the sake of uh, congruity, I guess, uh, two summary words that I would give to put this all together. I think we see in this passage of the master's compassion, we see certainly a picture of Jesus' sensitivity. I think we also see a picture of Jesus' clarity. Let's start with the first, I think Jesus as one who is sensitive. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the, the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And he knows what's troubling them. He knows what they're not asking him. Actually, this phrase is a little bit highlighted more in the original text. In the Greek, the phrase of them wanting to ask him is actually in the imperfect tense, meaning it isn't that they wanted to ask him this just in the past. It is that they wanted both in the past and will continue in the, the present and the future. They want to ask him this. They wanted to then, they want to now, and they will keep on wanting to ask this. This is how strong their desire to ask this is, and yet they don't. And Jesus goes in and says, I know what you really desire, and I will go ahead and answer. And what I think is amazing of note here, why I wanted to highlight his sensitivity, is because Jesus doesn't respond to their intellect but instead he responds to their heart. Jesus doesn't just give more clarity to his thought. What he does is he gives clarity to their own heart. And what I mean by this is in this you know, enigmatic statement that he says about going and coming, he doesn't say, this is what I mean, let me solve it for you, there'll be a cross, I'll die, but don't worry, I'll come back. He doesn't just walk them through intellectually, he doesn't really explain the verse 16 all that well into following but what he does do is he responds to their emotion. The words we read, he's telling them to weep, lament, be sorrowful, carry this grief, the grief that caused you not even to ask me. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. You'll get all that other stuff. I'm not explaining it now. That grief, that's what I want to talk about. So now I want to speak to your heart. I'm not gonna answer some little question. Instead, I'm gonna show you the solution to a much bigger problem, and that is that I can accomplish for you something you can't do for yourself. So that emotion, hold on to it now, because one day you will see and remember back to this time that I said, yes, the world is rejoicing, and you are filled with sorrow, and in that moment, you will see when I come again, it will be to turn that sorrow into joy. Again, remember Hebrews 
4.15, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. While Jesus' sensitivity causes them to speak towards their heart, I don't think he sacrifices clarity to do it. He speaks very, very clear and firm on what he is trying to address in their heart. This is where the passage does the work for us. He tells them, basically, uh, the whole teaching, the point of um, verse 20 is to provide their, the instruction, hey, remember this, and then he immediately explains in 21 the illustration, and then he gives them their own application in 22. So let's take a look at Jesus' great teaching here. In the beginning of 20, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Jesus is putting the world against himself. He's putting the cause of Christ and the world on opposite sides. We know again, at the point of his death, the world will be rejoicing in a false victory. And Jesus is saying, you will be sorrowful, but it is not a true victory. It is a false victory because it is powerless and I am powerful. And then he says to them, uh, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. I think this is an interesting phrase. It may be a small thing. It may be more, more just kind of a, a semantics thing. But I do think it is interesting that here, Jesus doesn't say, I will replace your sorrow with joy. What he says is, I will turn your sorrow to joy. As in what he's not saying is, he's not saying, I will take away the bad thing that makes you unhappy and I'll give you something good to make you happy. No, it's the same thing. The same thing that makes you grieve is the same thing that will make you rejoice. I think this is an interesting concept. It seems counterintuitive. So Jesus then provides an illustration. How do we understand this counterintuitive truth? Well, he goes on, verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. It's not that no longer she has that anguish. She just doesn't count it the same. It changes. The anxiety of a, of a birth to come now is still all that's still present, but now it's interpreted differently with the life of this child. Modern psychology actually has come to this as well. Um, again, it's not scripture, but I do think it is interesting. Modern psychology would say that anxiety and excitement physically are just the same thing. Physically, they're just a rush of cortisol that goes to your brain in each occurrence. I feel like this sermon is full of people's names who I can't pronounce, but that guy, <laughs> he put it like this, both excitement and anxiety involve the same chemical process in the brain. What separates these two arousal emotions are the associations we make with them. It's interesting. I've never really thought about it before. The idea that anxiousness and excitement physically is just the same thing. It's what I associate with them that determines what it is. So in the same way, my grief, my sorrow can be present with that. The emotion that is there is present as sorrow because I'm interpreting what is there as sorrowful. Now Jesus is saying, I will come and I will turn that same thing in you now from sorrow to joy just like a mother does in childbirth. And Jesus is pointing to the same truth for this woman and specifically draws it into application for the disciples and even for us today. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I think this is our closing application. It begs the question of uh, thinking about this process that Jesus is telling his disciples. Uh, They will have sorrow, and it will turn into joy. Did the disciples have anything in themselves that changed that? Did they, are they the reason that they changed from sorrow to joy? No, it's not about their work. This is all about what Jesus can accomplish. This is why, uh, why sandwiched between joy and sorrow here is not an action by the disciples, but what does it say? You will have sorrow, but I will see you again. I'm the one coming back. I'm the one who's changing this. I'm the reason for this shift. This is why it again can make this lavish promise to us that no one can take away your joy. Why? Because we didn't even earn it. He's the one giving it. He's the one doing the work. Now, so if we clearly see that disciples have no responsibility or credit that they can take for the change, they do have a responsibility for the participation in the change. That again is a gift of Jesus. Because what here is in, in, a, in the application does Jesus tell them to do? Well, he says, well, in this, they are to pray. They don't cause the change to happen, but they're given a role in the process. Pray. Now, maybe as we close our time together, I want to share more of just kind of even a personal testimony or part of my story where I saw this happened uh, in my life. And again, I share it with you as an encouragement, not because it's some merit of myself or of my wife that we caused any of this to change in our own lives, uh, but it is only the faithfulness of God who's the one to have the power. Because both Jill and I, um, well, I've never experienced this illustration of childbirth, um, which makes sense. Um, But Jill and I and our family actually have never done that either as a couple. We've expanded our family, but we've had to go uh, through the expansion by the way of adoption. And yet in that process of adoption, I saw this same truth play out in my life. Um, You see, if you know anything about adoption, uh, it it, it oftentimes takes a long time. Even just when you want to get started, when you say, yeah, I'm committed, I want to adopt somebody, you still have to go through months of of interviews, of training, of, of social workers coming out and inspecting your house. You go through all this, and it even goes months and months in. So even at the point that we said, we are excited and we want this now, We knew we were on a training course that was at least going to be half to a year long, six to 12 months long. Now, we finished that actually in about uh, seven to eight months, Um, and then we became our our profile, our our bio about ourselves became what we call active in the process. It means other uh, birth families who were seeking plans of adoptions could see and consider us. That's when it really became real. I'll tell you, the frustration leading through, at least we had something to pour it into. We could focus in on the training. We could pour into preparing ourselves, reading the books. When we became live, it was like every day. Every day that went by was one more day that we didn't have a kid. And that hit in a real way for us. We've started believing alive, saying, well, God, if this is a good thing we're trying to do for you, why, why are you waiting Why wouldn't you just give that to us now? And we began to despair in this. It was very quickly quickly seen that within our own interpretation of this, we were taking something that we 
thought was true and we were perverting it into something that wasn't true, we were basically saying, God, I know the timing of your gift towards us better than you. Now, luckily, we had a mentor who helped us with this realization. He basically pointed, even at Scripture, said, well, what does Scripture call you to do this? You know you can think a truth, but there is nothing that is aligning your feeling with that truth. So what do you do? Well, you're not going to change that. So pray. Pray that God changes that in you. And while you're praying, don't just be satisfied with that. Start living like it's true. Start living like these promises of how he will respond to your prayer is true to his character. So actually what we did, we were so grateful for this input in our lives, what we did is we uh, began every month of waiting, our, our anniversary of when we became active profiles. Uh, we started creating these little signs. Uh, we started celebrating with friends and with family who were closest to us. Um, we actually even started planning celebrations. And it would be like, we're going to do a date night to celebrate this one month of waiting or three months of waiting anniversary. We, nothing intuitively wanted us to do that. And there was nothing about being excited towards being waiting again now three months and celebrating that. But we choose to say, no, let's just pray to the Father to change this in us. Let's just start acting like it is true. And what happened, slowly in that process, is we started, God started changing our hearts and understanding that it's not just one more month without the gift I'm giving you. It's one more month closer to the special gift I have for your life. The, a divine gift that you yourselves don't even know that you would choose. This is the one. Now, I don't want to make light. If you've gone through the process of adoption, many people have waited much longer than us. Um, we actually only waited seven months. So to make it sound like it was such a hardship we faced, many more people faced much more than this. But I will say, praise be to God, before we got to celebrate that eighth month, this happened. And we got to put all those signs around a sweet little girl. And what happened is all of that sorrow, all of that grief, all of those lives when given over to him in prayer, what he did was he changed that. Those same emotions were there. We just got to interpret them against the truth that God calls us to, which is saying, I have a better will for you. Follow my glory and be filled with joy. And that's what I hopefully wanted to close as an encouragement. Uh, John's actually going to come up and he's going to sing a last song for us. And um, I hope you get a chance to deal with the Spirit and to ask yourself this same question. What is it in my life that I am not participating on the rich, full, abundant promises, focusing in on prayer for His glory so that His glory may be complete and in that completion, our joy made complete. This is the lavish love of our Father. I want to invite you now, if you need to stand and sing, if you need to kneel on the altar, uh, if you need to go find somebody and just pray with them, whatever it is and however you need to respond, this is the opportunity to do so.